Friends, this morning our Bible reading comes from Luke's Gospel. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Uh, One of our elders, John Coulter, will read it for us, and it is found on page 857 of the small print and 1090 of the big print. 1090 big print and 857 of the small print. John will read. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the following story, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. A couple of weeks ago, I was out with a friend who shall remain nameless. Let's just say his name rhymes with Sean Logan. No, it doesn't. Never worry about that. I was out with a friend. We're having a bit of breakfast, and we went to a coffee shop, and we enjoyed a cup of coffee, had a cup of tea. We were sitting there, and a friend of my friend approached us with a look of stern consternation on his face. He wasn't a happy man. He was a cross man, a a very grumpy man. And my friend asked him, what is wrong? The whole story came out. This individual who had approached us at our table told us that he had lived in this nameless town for all his life, and never before had he been treated in the way that he had just been treated. This nameless man in this nameless town had gone to a nameless coffee shop, and as he entered that nameless coffee shop, he was challenged by the owner. What are you doing in here? Just in for a cup of coffee. He said, you're barred. Get out. And he said, barred? Barred from a coffee shop? Are you kidding me? Barred? And he says, you're barred. You are in here the other week and you were shouting and roaring about Brexit. We're not having any of that in here. Get out. You're barred. And so this nameless individual in this nameless town who had lived there all his life and never before had been humiliated in such a way was so, so cross. And he was going up and down the street in this nameless town, finding anybody that he knew, telling them about his story. He was not the least bit impressed. My friend asked him, or told him, never worry about it, there's plenty of other coffee shops you could go to in this nameless town. And the nameless man said, you're absolutely right. What about that one down the street, said my friend. To which the man replied, well, I'm not allowed to go in there. I threatened to punch the owner. So maybe this nameless man, this nameless town had a bit of previous, a bit of history in the town. Maybe he wasn't as innocent as he liked to make out. But he didn't like being checked. He didn't like to be challenged about his shouting and roaring of Brexit, whatever side of that debate he was on. He had lived in that nameless town all throughout his days, and it had never happened before. For the first time, this individual experienced that there was a cost, there was a cost for that which he believed and proclaimed. 
Friends, maybe you see where I'm going with this. That is indeed a true story. That is something that happened recently, and maybe it is something that you've experienced yourself. A cost that is associated with that which you believe. This series that we have been doing over Sunday morning since September is entitled By Grace. God willing, in the evenings we have entitled a series on Hebrews 11, and we've called it By Faith. We're not terribly creative, it's not particularly imaginative, but we do hope that you have learned a little bit about the grace of God. Remember a few weeks ago we told you that how the grace of God was God's unmerited favor to those who deserve his wrath. That's us, that's you and I. Men and women born in sin and iniquity, men and women who deserve nothing from this holy and righteous God, men and women who have left to our own devices would rightfully deserve eternal punishment in hell. And yet instead, our God has stepped into history, stepped into our lives. The gospel has been preached. The Spirit has caused us to be born again. We have received Christ by faith. We are saved men and women. And that's the gospel of grace. But often churches like ours and individuals like us, we prefer our salvation cheap and easy. We prefer our gospel to be something that doesn't demand too much from us. The gospel of grace, which really doesn't impact on us that much. Certainly in the hours between 11 and 12 on a Sunday morning, that's when it hits home. But the rest of the week, well, that is up for grabs. My friends, if that is what we believe, then we believe in something called cheap grace. That is the sermon title this morning. That is what I want to preach in you about in this series on grace, cheap grace. What is cheap grace? Well, a German theologian killed by the Nazis in the Second World War by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. To put it into a Northern Ireland context, I suspect we could say that cheap grace is being saved one night in a mission in a field somewhere, and that salvation, that gospel decision has had absolutely no impact on your life. To put it into a Presbyterian context, cheap grace is when the membership list goes up and people look down at it and think, who's Joe Bloggs? To which the reply goes, well, Joe's been a member for 55 years, but never comes. And we're just afraid to take him off the list. That's cheap grace. Yes, I stuck my hand up once. Yes, I prayed a prayer once. Yes, if you asked me, am I saved? I'd probably say yes, but it has no tangible, discernible difference on my life. It is cheap grace without discipleship, without the cross, without Christ. Now, I'd like to think, folks, that even saying that, if I was to stop now at 20 to 12, I would hope that every single one of us in Eden Grove sees the danger of cheap grace, knows that it is repugnant, and wishes to flee from it. I hope that that is the case. But maybe some of you are sitting thinking, well, Scott, hold on a minute. Yes, this morning your suit is lovely and your wee beard's looking fine, but, but I thought that salvation was free. I thought that grace was only grace because it was free. Does that not make sense? Is that not what has been said here for generations? After all, Paul says in Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death, 
listen to these words, but the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Surely then our salvation is free. Surely salvation has cost Christ everything and therefore what's the wrong? What's, what's the problem with the way we're going in Northern Ireland? Well, folks, you see, as I said to the wee ones this morning, yes, certainly we preach a gospel of grace. Today we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is true, and for as long as I stand in this pulpit, that's the gospel you will hear. That is the one true gospel. The gospel is all of grace. But if the gospel that we have believed and received by the grace of God produces no fruit in our lives, if it's just a get-out-of-hell-free card, if it's just an easy ticket to an easy heaven, then we have missed the point of the gospel. Grace is indeed free. But that free gift of God that Paul writes of came at an exceptionally huge cost. The wee man in Newcastle didn't like it because, ah, oh, I said the name of the town. It rhymes with Newcastle. The wee man I met somewhere, Drummond S. He didn't like it because he'd been humiliated. He didn't like it because suddenly there was a cost to him spending an afternoon one day shouting about Brexit one way or the other. He didn't appreciate it that suddenly someone said to him, this is repercussion. He was humiliated and none of us like to be humiliated. But friends, today if we've ever experienced the this, this sting of humiliation, we stop for a moment and consider the humiliation of Christ. See, God's gift to us is a free gift, but it costs Jesus everything. Our catechism asks the question, where did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer given is this. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. Do you see that? The catechism doesn't begin at Calvary. It certainly gets there. It, it moves us in that direction, but it begins and says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. John read for us Luke chapter 2. He read for us a familiar passage from the days of Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. And then there was a Roman called Quirinius who, who put out this registration, this census. And even to this day, we know how important senses are. And the, the next one is in a couple of years, and everybody's waiting to see if there'll be a vote on a united Ireland. Will the numbers shift dramatically? Census, super important, but the Jews did not do census. They thought it was a great sin. They, they didn't do it. And yet here are these massively powerful Romans, and they declare a census. And it all fits in. To God's perfect plan. It all fits into this wonderful story of redemption because it causes Joseph to go up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, familiar words, friends, but let them drip into your hearts. While they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Where did Christ's humiliation consist? 
and has been born. And as we read this passage, we read the name of a grand figure in history, Caesar Augustus. You can rest assured that the night Christ lay in a manger, Caesar Augustus lay in a fancy palace somewhere in Rome. And you can be resting assured that Quirinius, this lower level Roman official, that night that Christ lay in a manger, Quirinius wasn't worried about no room at the inn. Wherever he slept that night was in the lap of luxury. But here is the Son of God, the King of Kings, being born into this sinful world, taking on flesh. And his journey and experience of humiliation began. Where did Christ's humiliation consist in his being born? says the catechism. He was in a low condition. He was made under the law. He underwent the miseries of this life. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. Do you get that, brothers and sisters? The wrath of God poured out upon this child. And the cursed death of the cross. And being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Here is Christ's humiliation. And here, my friends is the extraordinary cost of grace. You see, when we make much of grace on a Sunday morning, but fail to make much of grace throughout the week, then we have missed the point. When church and being a Christian is all about that one hour, even if we do that, not every week isn't guaranteed. If it's about that one hour, then we pat ourselves on the back and away we go. And you know what? I often preach the gospel in Ballon Hinch, but sometimes I wonder if I really need to because everybody I meet is connected to a church somewhere. It is the most religious Christian town you've ever come across. And yet, we fight and argue. I hear on the streets that there are drugs all around this town. We hear of suicide and depression and all sorts of sin and darkness, and yet you tap somebody on the shoulder and they'll say, oh, I don't belong to you, I go to the Baptist. Oh, I, I belong to Warren Russell. We're all related to a church somewhere. It all means something in, in our little town. Funny, it's not like that in Belfast. Belfast, even church attendance is dying to death. More and more Belfast realizes that the gospel means nothing to many of people in Belfast. We put on the, the brave face in Balnehitch and we, we let on that it means something and yet it has no impact. When were you saved? Well, I, I prayed a prayer once. How were you saved? Well, I, I went up to the front of the mission once. When was that? 1972. Where do you go to church? Oh, I don't, I don't anymore. Do you read the word? Does it mean much to you? Nah, not so much. Cheap grace. Cheap grace which makes a mockery of the extraordinary cost of Christ's death and resurrection. Paul puts it another way in Galatians 4. He says this in verses 4 to 5. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Here is again the extraordinary cost of grace. Listen to it once more. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Let it sink in. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Grace is free. Grace has no cost attached. Not 
a bit of it. This Jesus, when the fullness of time was come, was sent into this world. It came at the decree of God as part of his extraordinary plan of salvation. It didn't happen 3,000 years ago or 5,000 or, or even last week. The Lord in his sovereignty and in his grand decree, he decreed that it would happen in the days of Caesar Augustus. And many reasons are given for that. Many reasons are stated. It was a time of peace and prosperity. Augustus was Caesar for many, many years. The Romans after him started killing off emperors willy-nilly, but, but Augustus was on the throne for a long, long time. There was relative peace. There was relative stability. The Romans made all the fancy roads you could get about the empire. If those were the reasons, well, I have never advised God. But in the fullness of time, the Lord God sent his son. As Moses, as we read about Moses in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God loved this world so much, and we know this off by heart. If ever there was a verse to define Northern Ireland, it would be this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. No cost to it, was there? gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life here's the extraordinary cost of grace it wasn't me that was given it wasn't you it wasn't our finances that we gave to try and get God to do something on our behalf that wasn't it the Lord moved in human history. He active, acted definitively in human history. And God sent forth his Son when the fullness of time was come. And where did Christ's humiliation consist? Well, he was born in a low condition, made under the law, as the confession states, the catechism states. And we see that in the scriptures. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, the prophecy that was given was that the woman would have a child, a son, a seed that he would come and he would crush the head of the serpent. This same seed is Jesus, made of a woman. Now can you imagine that? The, the Lord God Almighty, the Son of God, stepping into his creation. It would be like you building a business from the ground up. You've spent 40 years building a business in Balnehinch, and, and yet one day you go in and you have to clean the toilets. Would you think that that's your responsibility? Of course not. Your name's above the door. You don't do stuff like that. You don't get your hands dirty like that. And yet when the fullness of time was come, the Son of God became the Son of Man. He took on flesh, born of a woman, and made under the law. You see, often we miss that about Christ's life and experience and his humiliation. Christ kept the law fully, perfectly, absolutely. Christ, the second Adam, did what the first Adam failed to do. Christ kept the covenant of works perfectly. Everything, every I dotted, every T crossed. Luke tells us later on in chapter 2 that Jesus was circumcised. And his family did everything that they were supposed to do at the time of Mary's purification. In verse 39 in Luke 2 tells us that when they performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Jesus comes 
an extraordinary cost. He takes on flesh. And Jesus comes and in an act of humiliation, he keeps that which he had written, the law of God. Friends, how often do we treat this as if it means nothing? Grace, well, we sing about it and we say it and we name our children after it, but do we ever really grasp it? What does grace mean? Well, it means I don't get what I deserve. What does it mean the Wednesday afternoon? Eh, not very much. What does grace mean? Well, I won't burn in hell like those bad people, but what does it mean on a Thursday night? Well, not very much. But friends, today if we bear that title saved, men and women who have received this saving grace through faith in Christ, it means not just something, but everything. Christ comes born of woman, born under the law, which he keeps perfectly, and he comes to do it to redeem them that were under the law. That's you and me. That's everyone who has ever been saved, everyone who has ever looked upon Christ and received him as their Savior once we were under the law. And under that law, we were about to be crushed by the wrath of God because we aren't just sinners because we sin the odd time. We were born in sin and iniquity. We were off Adam, and therefore we were born in sin. So Christ comes to redeem us who were under the law and inevitably on our way to a lost eternity, getting what we deserve. Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And how has he done it? By being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Grace doesn't cost, does it? It cost Jesus. It cost Christ absolutely everything. He became the curse so that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Friends, we live in days where we read our Bibles, we know what they say, but do you know what? There's much more important things in life. And yet what is more important than what Jesus did? What is more significant than what Jesus did? What has cost anyone more than it cost Jesus? In the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, a famous passage, we are reminded, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, Jesus, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we will desire him. He, Jesus, is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid as our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But Jesus was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, the stripes of Christ, we are healed. All of us like sheep, we read in Isaiah 53, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Friends, when we hear the gospel... And it seems just so familiar 
and so light and frivolous that it has no impact on us and there's no tangible, discernible change in us. And have we really heard the gospel? Even though we prayed that prayer and stuck our hand up in the air, did we really understand that Christ died for us to redeem us from the curse? That we might receive, as Paul says in Galatians 4, the adoption of sons, that we might be brought into the royal family of God, that we might be saved, that we might bear that name Christian? Did we really get it? Folks, what do we do with this? See, today I suspect most of us, maybe all of us, we prefer our grace cheap. We prefer it easy. We prefer the gospel that doesn't interfere in our lives. The Savior that isn't interested in anything that goes on except that what happens between 11 and 12 on a Sunday morning. But that's not the gospel. Today I'm not saying to you to be saved by your works. Of course not gospel is a gospel of grace. The gospel is a gospel of grace from start to finish. We receive it by faith in Christ. We cling to the finished work of Christ. It is not of works. But as we respond to the gospel, it is, as John the Baptist said to the crowds in Luke chapter 3, he urges them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. You see, that's the Christian life. A life that has received the grace of God. We, we know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not of works, so that no one can boast. But once we have received that gospel, we go and die to self every single day. We pick up our cross every single day. We follow Jesus every single day. That is our only true response to the gospel. That's it. And if we think it's light and empty and frivolous and it's, it's like, you know, I go to Sainsbury's, oh, I go to Tesco's and I believe the gospel, oh, I don't. That's not it. It's everything. And if we are redeemed and born again, if we have moved from death onto life, if we are now this living tree, this living body that is supposed to produce fruit, then my brothers and sisters, in response to what you have heard today and the extraordinary cost of grace and a reminder of what Jesus has done, then produce fruit. You don't do it on your own, thanks be to God. You do it as the Spirit works in you. But, but let me ask you, just you and me, as if... We're the only ones listening. How is your evangelism? When is the last time you, you shared this good news? Because it's important, isn't it? Is it important enough to share? How is your life of prayer? When was the last time that you passionately cried out to the Lord to do a work in our church, to do a work in our town? Because that's a response to this gospel, isn't it? That, that relationship, that living relationship every day. When was the last time we were immersed in the Word of God and had a hunger and thirst for even more? When was the last time that we loved the Church of Christ so much that we couldn't wait to be at it more and more, helping our brothers and sisters, encouraging them, building them up in the Lord? Living trees who have come to realize the cost of the cross respond by doing works in keeping with repentance. 
And you see these same living trees. And it sounds a bit strange, but these living trees, you and I, we die every day. That's the response to the gospel. Living trees that die every single day. Again, our catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? The answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace. It is worked in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense and the danger and the filthiness and odiousness of our sins, and knowing that God is merciful in Christ to those who call upon him, we grieve and hate our sin, and we turn from them every single day to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Friends, that's our response. Is it always my response? No. Is it always yours? I would say probably not. But here is the response to the cost of the gospel. Here is the only proper response to the wonderful thing that we call grace. Not cheap grace that means nothing and expects nothing and demands nothing true saving grace where every day Christ calls us to follow him and to come and die there's our response to grace to the gospel and finally folks I did promise you a mention of Isaac Watts I think he says it better than me I maybe should have just got up and gone for it and sang amazing grace we're not going to sing it to finish, by the way, before you get all excited. But what did Isaac Watts once write? A love so amazing and so divine demands my soul and my life and my all. I don't know how many times I've sung that. I don't know if I've ever truly understood it or believed it. But no more. No more half-hearted Northern Ireland Presbyterian Christianity. No more for Scott Woodburn. No more of this, oh, you know, it's the same everywhere. No more of hearts that are filled with passion for the orange order and nothing else. No more of looking into this world and saying, oh, what can be done? No more of hearing the gospel and thinking, oh, that's lovely. No more of this half-hearted sitting on the fence, Miss Scott Woodburn, and it is to me. I preach this. No more. The gospel is not empty and light. It is the gospel of grace to all who will believe. My friends, you must believe. There is nothing more extraordinary. Nothing more great than the humiliation that Christ underwent for me, this wretch up here, me in the 200-pound suit or whatever it was. He did it for me. And my response today, I pray, will not be to cheapen the grace that I have received, but to sing to Jesus a love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. 
maybe today, my brothers and sisters, you'll sing that song with me. Amen.